0: So, the summer right before seventh grade, my family moved from deep country to bustling suburbia in one straight shot. Before walking into school my first day, I tried to psych myself up. I tried to recall that it didn't happen right away, but yeah, when I left I was king of the sixth grade. And this was a bigger canvas. I'd never seen so many kids in the same place in my life, but my inner self told my outer self to act like he's been here before. And I did. Took a deep breath of that first day of school smell. And it was on. I waved at kids who weren't waving at me, nodded at the map like I knew what was happening, shouted down the hall at James, Mark, Tiffany, whatever names I thought up, And the first day packet said to go to your locker, test your locker, and then go to your assigned homeroom. Lockers, you know, I wasn't too familiar. Out in the country, we just had these cubby holes. And the packet said something about turn left for the lock. And then there were the numbers, so I dialed 8-21-14. I pulled, and nothing happened. I tried again, pulled, and I noticed these two kids were looking at me, laughing. So I kind of wiggle the locker and tried to give it a yank and these kids were like hey, 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 hey look at this dumb kid he doesn't even know how to open a lock and more kids come and everyone's having a jolly time they're shouting and pointing and hooting and someone pushes me into the locker and I go to swing and get shoved again and again and I, I know I can't cry now I'm the first day of school And then there's the real blows and I hold my arms in front of my face, but still some guys are grabbing me and they're hitting me in the back of the neck and they're picking me up, picking me up my entire body and screaming and laughing and before shoving me hard into a garbage can, pressing me down into the muck. But not any garbage can. It's the kind with the dome top on it. They shove it over my head, and they latch it from the outside. The howls. It's the funniest thing that they've ever seen. Then the laughter stops on a dime. And I can't see anything because I'm shoved inside a garbage can, and I think it must be a teacher or the principal. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this is going to make it worse. And then I hear this. You, you jerks simple stooges. You feel better now picking on the new kid? Voice like poison. Easy contempt, disdain. And the hurt mob melts away. I hear fingers unlocking the clasp on the garbage can. I kind of fall out onto the floor and I look up at this girl. She's petite, super pretty, obviously popular. Are you alright? Yeah, I'm fine. I start trying to pick up my papers and my books strewn about the hallway. I walk back to the front of my locker. I just look at it, but I can't do this in front of her. And she just says, what's your combination? I give her the paper. And she says, the trick is you have to spin it once first before the left, right, left. Oh, we're in the same class. She leads me to the other end of the school. We stop in front of the classroom. You know, everyone's gonna know, right? Yeah. Don't worry. Follow my lead. She opens the door. Everyone looks up and starts snickering. The teacher's like, "You're late." But the girl, she ignores him. Raises my hand like in victory and says, "This is the new kid, the garbage man." I smile and I take a bow, and everyone laughs again, but not at me. With me. Thank you, Lori Slater Boomers, so very much. Today on Snap Judgment from WNYC, Godsend. Amazing stories from real people who needed some divine intervention. My name is Glenn Washington. And if you need some good news, you're in luck. Because you're listening. Listen, 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 listen. To Snap Judgment. We're going to kick things off on our God episode. With a story straight from the heartland, which might be hard to believe for reasons you'll soon learn. Blala Ellen Spencer, tell the tale.
1: I am Ellen Spencer, and I live in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. I don't exactly sound like I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, I get all the time where you are from, and people's not to believe me when I tell them. But I am from here. Landlocked Indiana, we don't have many foreigners traveling through, like maybe Los Angeles, Chicago, or New York. I had a French lady get very angry at me once. She thought I was dissing the homeland. We were have primary elections, and I was helping, which, by the way, only an American citizen could do, so it was my job to ask everybody to please to hand me their picture ID. And so I asked the lady if she could to please put her ID onto the table. And that's how I pronounced it then. And then she started to speak in the French to me. Obviously, since she's voting, she's a naturalized citizen. But she was telling me she was from here and there and all this. And she, but she's, she's carrying on in, in French. I tell you what, I don't know any French. I knew enough to say I don't parler. of She got angry at me. And uh, there was a line of people, made quite the scene. And I tell you, I, 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 I apologize, I, you know. ever anybody gets angry at me, I don't get angry back, it does no good. I just say, hey, i sorry you can't accept it, but again, facts are facts, I am not French. I don't even speak the French. Six years ago, I was at my computer working on a project, got a very, very bad migraine, but it was the numbness that was striking to me. It was. It started at the tip of my chin. I went to my lips. By the time she gets to my lips, I'm noticing it. I start moving my head around, uh, slapping myself in the face, you know, tapping. And I uh, was doing dishes late that night and boy did I get hammered with a severe pain at the back of the head like somebody trying to chop my head off. It was really strange. Anyway, the next day I go to the hospital. My husband to call me about two hours after I'm at the ER to check. And he asks me, he says, what did they give you? And I go, nothing, I just have saline only. He said, you are slurring your speech like they give you a strong medication. And then the neurologist, what is my diagnosis, I ask him. He goes, well, slurred speech of unknown origin. And I'm thinking to myself, I just spent two, three days in the hospital, and my diagnosis is something I could have diagnosed myself with. You sound funny, and you got a headache, and I don't know why. I would say it started to transition, as you would say, to an accent within uh, 48 hour. Every day, I'm experimenting to try to figure it out on my own. Uh, you want to say the word weird. I feel weird. I can say it now, but back then, I feel word. Okay, that makes no sense to people. They're trying to figure it out. Okay, that's fine, I'll pick a different word. Shrine. uh-oh. Defront, oh my gosh. You get running out of, s- of synonyms after a while. You're like, give me the a and then you're like, okay, can't even say caesaurus. If you could imagine to look in the mirror and see your own lips are moving, but that's not your voice coming out. This is not the voice when I talk to my little girl and read her her bedtime story. This is not the voice when I stood in front of a church and proclaimed my my devotion to my husband and says, I will love you forever and always. I died. My speech was gone. It fueled me to seek out even more information on the net boom. All of a sudden, I hit one video in particular. Uh, it was called My Strange Brain. And it was about a lady. Cat Lockett was her name. C-A-T-H. I cannot say the T-H is very well. And uh, she sounded French. And same similar kind of things to happen. This boom. All of a sudden, they are sounding like a foreigner in their own country. Sometimes they And this thing was called foreign accent syndrome. It's so rare, doctors not have heard of it before. So if you go to a doctor for answers, people don't believe. People would say, you're making it up, it's fake. Uh, She sounds stupid. there's no question, something happened in my brain. I am not a psych case, I'm not a nut, I'm not stupid. Uh, say you are a, an actor in a play, and you are taking on a Southern accent or something, you will flub up once in a while, somewhere along the line. I live this 24-7, I don't flub it up, okay? I go to church about a week later. It was like the first time I had to really go out. Singing is very, very special to me because I have chronic pain, that I'm allergic to all pain medication. One of the ways I cope with the pain is to sing. I am singing in front of a church full of people uh, 10 days after I am having this to happen for me. Few days before we actually uh, do this in front of the church, we practice the songs. I am scared that i going to get up to the microphone and not be able to sing. And the very first song, what comes up is a song that's very special to me over the years, and it's called Shout to the Lord. Fran is playing the intro on the piano. Here it comes. Is it going to work or not? Take my breath, and I start to sing this song, and it came out. Savior, for there is none like you. And it sounded the same way it always sounded when I sang before my voice to change. And I tell you, it was just like time stood still. I continued to sing, but I was really choked up, and I mean, I managed to keep it, and then by the time I got to that second verse, with that, that line that I love, forever I love you, forever I'll stand, I didn't need no microphone to fill that whole sanctuary. It came from my toes all the way out to my voice and up to heaven. So then I started to inspect what's different about my singing. Wait a minute, how it is I can sing, but not to be able to speak? Well, I discovered for me that, oh boy, i almost to cry from saying this, I can sing in my head a sentence and be able to speak in my own speech. So if I say, even though I sound like a foreigner, I am a Hoosier and grew up on a farm, and then I'm singing it in my head right now, even though I sound like a foreigner, I was born and raised in Indiana, and grew up on a farm. I'm Ellen Spencer, and I have foreign accent syndrome. Uh, Don't you hear it starting to slip back on the, uh, probably about the word syndrome? Did you hear it coming back? I can do that, only for a little bit, but I tell you, it is such a precious gift when That piece of you is taken away. And that's how it feels. It felt like everything else in the last previous two weeks had been, I'm I'm lost. I have a piece of me still. I have to act to be myself. I have to put the same amount of effort into getting back to my original voice that somebody else would have to in getting to a foreign voice, only in my case all I gotta do is sing it in my head because I still sing the same but I can't go around you know, uh, making this a, uh, a, a living musical all my life, go down singing, you know, I, I never really care for musicals anyway but could you imagine, I'm here to get some bread you know, is it, how you going to do stuff like that <laughs> Right now, I just celebrated what we call an FAS birthday number six, so it's been six years with this voice I'm speaking right now, and nobody to this day can explain why. Nobody can help me with it. I'm kind of on my own. I haven't given up on getting back to my old voice, but I haven't stopped living because I don't have it. And if from this moment on I have to go on with just the new voice, then it's what it is. It's my voice. All of my-
0: Thanks Ellen Spencer for sharing your story with the Snap. It was produced by Julia DeWitt. With original sound design and score, did you dig that last lit? Uh, by our own Pat Masidi Miller. When the Snap Judgment Godsend episode continues, a woman discovers her true magic powers and a glimpse at one of the most elusive mammals in the entire world. I am not kidding, Snappers. It's going to be awesome. Stay tuned right after the break. Snap Judgment. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the godsend episode. Today, when you least expect it, expect it. Because for our next story, we head out to the shores of Alaska. For Lynn Sculler, there is nothing better than being alone in the wilderness.
2: When I was a, growing up, up in Anchorage, you know, back in the late 60s and early 70s, I had heard of blue bears and you'd hear the stories about them, you know, like they were these uh, bears that lived up on the glaciers and never came down, and that's why they were this pale gray blue color and other people would say how they knew of somebody who knew somebody who uh, shot one. But I certainly never never saw one and didn't know anybody who, who had seen one. It uh, always seemed so elusive and special. It just uh, was below the radar all the time. I got into the guiding business because shortly after I moved down to Southeast Alaska here, um, through a strange sequence of events, I actually wound up working for a law firm. And I've always played a game with myself where I asked myself what I would do if a uh, doctor told me I only had two years to live. I decided, sitting there at my desk, you know, with a screen in front of me and a suit and tie on, that I would want to spend all of that time outdoors in wild places on my own, answering to nothing social or cultural or none of those expectations of how you should look or be or act. I went out and got a Master Mariner's license uh, from the United States Coast Guard and built a boat to do this with and uh, started a more or less a water charter freight service here in Southeast Alaska. I would work 115, 125 days straight, exhaust myself. Winter would come, I'd just kind of hunker down and get through it however best I could and then uh, prepare for the next season. It, uh, it suited me. I didn't have the latitude. I didn't have the, the mental playroom to let some very disturbing things from my past that had been eating at me for a long time keep running around and around in my head. When I was 21 years old, a woman that I was very attached to was, uh, disappeared. You know, of course, after we had searched all the woods around her cabin and done everything we could do to figure out where she went and why she left her dogs alone and why there was food rotting in the refrigerator and what could have happened, uh, turned out that she had been adup- abducted and uh, was murdered. Never knowing exactly who was involved that cast a very long shadow over everything else. I didn't trust anybody. I didn't want to be close. I was not sure that the general cut of humanity was desirable company. I was 36 when I started working on getting the boat together and preferred to be alone. One day the phone rang and it was uh, Micha Hoshino, a Japanese fellow, I could tell from his accent, and it turned out he was one of the best wildlife photographers in the world, if maybe even the best, and had a huge rock star following in Japan. He wanted to hire me to take a film crew out for six weeks, and my initial reaction was no way. The thought of having four people in an 8x10 area for weeks on end sounded more like uh, the best analogy was a prison cell, but there was something in his approach that made me consider it. He just wanted to go out in the woods or on the water and see the most beautiful things he could see and try to take good photos of it. So I I took the job. Within uh, a couple of hours of having him on the boat, getting ready and everything, I realized that I liked him, which was kind of unusual, you know, to right away just like somebody. He was such a calm presence that you didn't feel like you had to be on your guard at all. I wasn't used to asking anybody for anything. And so I very reluctantly asked him if he would teach me something about photography. And he immediately agreed. I had uh, taken Michio way up on a hillside where there's a stand of interstadial stumps, and he was setting up, taking some photos. And and he suddenly, uh, he just stepped aside and motioned at his camera that he had on tripod there and pointed down at a Just a stump and some rocks. And I I put my eye up to the viewfinder. There was this beautiful composition. A lot of smooth stones of different colors nestled into the curve of a root. It was like the root and these stones that were millions of years old had this intimacy between them. As if I was looking at a Madonna or a photo of a mother holding a baby. How did he see that in that pile of rubble that I was standing on? And that was fascinating to me. It was kind of an eye-opener about what photography could be like. He told me once that every photo should tell a story. And after he explained that to me, I started recognizing that in his work. He uh, asked me one day if I thought we could find a blue bear. And I said, not a chance. Going looking for a blue bear is going to be like looking for a Yeti or, you know, a snow leopard. But he kept bringing it up. He kept asking me how we could find a blue bear. I started digging into it and gathering up all the information, and and we started uh, making trips to some of these areas where there seemed like there might be a chance. He understood that bears can be very dangerous, but he also appreciated living with bears. He was adopted into the bear clan of the Clinkett Indians. One of our trips together, we had been up into a, a fjord region where I'd heard a rumor of a blue bear and spent several days without any success, no sign of it. One of those days where it's just so calm, you could you know, see seagulls landing on the water half a mile away and, and no wind at all. And we decided to make a run and see if we could find some humpback whales. This was very late in the autumn. This weather front hit us, went from blowing maybe five knots to 20, to 40, to 50. And then I don't know how hard it was blowing. It was just blowing like hell. And the seas built up almost faster than I can describe it. Like big gray animals coming at us out of the dark. And my boat, the Wilderness Swift, is only 31 feet long. It was out of control. I did not think we were going to make it. Michio uh, asked me how it looked. I lied. I said we'll be okay. The Swift is a good boat. We'll make it. And so he said okay. He laid down. I kept steering the boat and praying and was dry-mouthed with fear. And I looked back and Micho was sleeping. He was he was asleep. And the boat was just being thrown helter-skelter all over the place. Somehow or other we managed to make it and tuck into a little hole I knew about up there and get into shelter. Micho got up and looked around and said, oh, okay. He immediately started making dinner, you know? (laughs) I was just clammy with sweat and stank from fear and and was just so amazed to still be alive. And when I asked him uh, if he wasn't afraid, he said, uh, well, you said we'd be all right. And it just struck me how, how he believed me. He trusted me to be right. I'm glad I didn't make a liar out of myself. I found myself putting in extra effort to try to hunt down a, an elusive blue bear, talking to biologists, calling up other naturalists and guides, digging through the records in the library, going through old magazines, and just trying to parse up any little reference to the blue bear. It was intense. You know, my, my intention was to do the very best I could for Michio. It got to where everything else uh, was just filling in the, the time between our, our trips. We would have the kind of conversations I'd never had with anybody before. We were at anchor, you know, in a little little cove, and we were in the cabin of the boat. We had coffee after dinner, you know, so, fresh smell of coffee, and sitting there in the light of a 12-volt white bulb, and the windows are open, and outside there's there's the darkness, you know, and it's, it's quiet. And there's a sense of a, a really big world out there waiting. And that's, that, was the, that was the first time in our conversations, you know, when, when we were talking about all his successes. and You know, he had a show at the Carnegie Museum. He had a show in, in Tokyo that 10,000 people attended the opening day. They were doing documentaries of him. His books were selling very well. And then just out of the blue, he said, I would trade all of this to have a family. And I realized that he was lonely. And that really hit me. Having those kind of conversations at night became one of the things that I look forward to the most, you know, and gradually realizing that what I really enjoyed here was this uh, open, intimate connection about what we really thought and felt. Sometimes he would ask my advice, you know, on, <laughs> on, uh, on how to get what he wanted, which was, I was the last person you ought to be asking uh, how you'd go about getting married and It kind of snuck up on me that all of a sudden I had this close good friend. And then one day he called me up and I could tell immediately that he was just vibrating with excitement. Micho had made a trip back to Japan and I asked him what was going on and he said, I met her. Who? What? Tell me about it. He said, her name is Naoko. We're going to get married pretty soon. I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit that my reaction was, oh, no. Instead of being happy for him, I thought I was afraid it was going to mean the end of our, our trips, that he was going to disappear. You know, he was going to fade out of my life. And then that passed pretty quickly. His uh, excitement was contagious. And uh, a year or so later, he got married and uh, had a son. But then he came came to Juneau with his family and... Uh, he still had hopes for finding the blueberry. I was kind of elated that it wasn't gonna change that much and it looked like we were definitely gonna be making another trip. It was some months later that uh, I called Michio up. I was all very excited and uh, said, I know where there's a blueberry. We can we can go to this place. Only Michio couldn't go when I thought we needed to go. We put it on hold and I had another charter after being out for a week or ten days with those that crew, I pulled into a little village named Cake and went to a payphone to call in and get all my messages at home. There were probably half a dozen or more messages from people calling to tell me that Micho was dead. Micho was working, doing his photography with his film crew in the Kamchatka Brown Bear Preserve in the middle of the night, this bear who had been hanging around too close to camp and breaking into things, took Micho out of his tent and uh, killed him. I remember standing in that little restaurant, that cafe on the payphone, and this incredible void opened up. I literally don't remember the rest of the day You know, just get back out on the water, find wildlife for these photographers, you know, set up, wait for the light, pay attention to the weather. But I wasn't present somehow, you know, it's like I was just watching myself do this stuff, not having any idea what the future might be, or if there was a future, if it was worth thinking about. Just loss. The following spring, I'd lined up trips for the spring, and uh was with a couple of photographers that I wasn't getting along with. You know, looking back, I probably was not in the best frame of mind. We were anchored off in uh, a fairly remote area. There was no wind, but there was the sound of water, you know, the sea moving, all the thousands of tiny little bubbles and pops and clicks and all you hear from different bivalves being exposed. kind of thing where at first it, it seemed silent and quiet and still, but when you really start listening, there's just kind of a constant murmuration of of movement in life. A bear walked out onto the beach, got to looking, and there was something different about it. I put the skiff in the water and got a little closer, and it was this husky, well-furred, heavily muscled animal with this kind of smoky gray coat that blended into the all of the glacial erratic stones and the cobbles and things. It looked like a dark gray stone. Sure enough, it was a blue bear. I broke every rule I had about approaching wildlife. I've always made it a point to try to not bother the animals, not intervene. But I just kept drifting closer and closer and closer. And the skiff is in a couple of inches of water I might have even stepped out of the skiff and started walking towards it if it hadn't just suddenly spun around and was looking at me and just picked up my camera that Micho had talked me into getting and took one shot. And then it just turned and ran off into the woods, and it was gone. And then it was just me sitting there on the beach. Part of it was very bittersweet. You know, it kind of felt a little bit like something was being put in my face. And I remember thinking, where are you, Michio? Where are you now that I've finally found a blue bear? Took one sixtieth of a second to take that picture. It's blurry. It's kind of out of focus. You can tell it's a blue bear from the color, but the entire... Story of my friendship with Michio, all of those remarkable times I had spent with Michio, uh, was wrapped up in that one sixtieth of a second, and the fact that it's not much of a composition and that it's blurry and you know poorly shot uh, doesn't change that.
0: Thank you, Lynn Sculler, for sharing your story. To find out more about Lynn and Michio's adventures, grab a copy of Lynn's book, The Blue Bear. Have a link at snapjudgment.org. The story was produced by Nancy Lopez with sound design, original sound scoring, and original sound playing on instruments by Renzo Gorio and Divi Kim. Now stay tuned. Because we're about to hear about one person's communion with the divine, and the divine answers back. On the Snap Judgment Godsend episode, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from WNYC. the Godsend episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and today, looking for messages from a higher power. Now, everyone plays these little games, the parental figures, right? peek hide-and-seek. Well, on our next story, listen, because it starts with a mysterious game, but you will not believe where it ends up. Some straight Jumanji-type stuff, snap, judgment.
3: My dad would say to me, I'm going to write something down on a piece of paper, and then I'm going to hand it to you, and then you're going to close your eyes, and you're going to breathe in and out, and then you're going to tell me what you see. And then I'd go into what I saw, and then he'd tell me it wasn't that. This was a test, and I kept failing the test. My father co-founded a 1960s cult. It was called the Holy Order of Mans. People thought that they could levitate and move buildings with their minds. And I wanted to believe that I was the daughter of a prophet and that I had magical powers. When I failed at something like the folded paper game, he wouldn't play it with me for a few weeks. It was sort of almost like a little punishment. Moving things with my mind became a big one. I would practice with small things, pencils and paper, and sometimes I thought that I'd done it. He had taught me a chant to say. The chant was, I feel, I sense, I know. But part of getting the chant right was to believe that it was going to work. And I feared that that was the failure, that I just didn't believe strongly enough. And what I would do is I would type my chance. I would type, I feel that I have the ability to fly. I sense I have the ability to fly. I know I have the ability to fly. I feel that my mom's gonna get us off of welfare. I sense that my mom's gonna get us off of welfare. Most of what I attempted to control had to do with things that I wanted to be when I grew up, which was a famous actress, a good witch with real magical powers, and a savior of the world. We were a news-watching household. Every single night, our living rooms were filled with terror. The entire country was aware that at some point we probably were gonna have a nuclear war with, with Russia, with the Soviet Union at that time. You know, I would pray about it. I tried everything I could think of. Every day, every morning, every night, sitting at the typewriter, and nothing worked. And because I was a failure, I hadn't brought my father back. I hadn't helped relations with Russia. It was 1982. Uh, Samantha Smith was a year older than I. She had lived several towns over and she had written, written a letter to the then-Soviet premier Yuri Andropov to express her worry about getting into a nuclear war. And a week later, the Soviet embassy called Samantha at home to say that a reply from Yuri Andropov was on its way. She got a response, and it was typed in Russian, and it was accompanied by an English translation that read, we, we in the Soviet Union are trying to do everything so that there will not be war on Earth. He invited Samantha and her family to go visit his country. And uh, I stayed up late to watch her interviewed on Nightline by Ted Koppel.
2: And finally tonight, the story of Samantha Smith, a 10-year-old girl from Manchester, Maine. Now that you've gone through this experience, what do you conclude from all of this?
1: Well, I just hope we can have peace and I hope it'll do some good.
2: What else what did, what, did, what, did the, what did the neighbors say? What did your parents say when the letter arrived
3: this morning?
1: Well, they just said they were proud of me and really happy that I thought of such a thing to do.
3: She was everything I wanted to be that I didn't think I was. My attempts to develop my powers became very focused on her. So now not only want to, did I want to be a famous actress and a good witch and a savior, I wanted to trump Samantha Smith. She had gone to the Kremlin, the Russian Friendship Society, and she'd had a luncheon with the first woman cosmonaut. The news coverage was really big across the country, but because she was specifically from Maine, it was pretty intense here. For two weeks, I really seethed and cringed at every news story. I mean, she had really set in motion something huge, and she was making real suggestions to save the world. And then, (laughs) uh, one day, my mother and I were watching TV, and there was an advertisement for a new TV show that was gonna star Samantha Smith and Robert Wagner. I could feel the muscles of my face clench. Not only was Samantha Smith, this beautiful little girl, saving the world, Now she was taking my dream of being a famous actress. I truly did not believe that there could be more than one little girl from Maine to have this kind of success. And I closed my eyes, sitting in the living room, and I focused my mind, and I breathed in and out, and in and out, The sounds of the room and the TV just seemed to drift away. And one thought formed with great clarity. I wish Samantha Smith would die. And then it was summer, um, August 26, 1985. It had rained the night before, and I started doing my morning prayers of s- praying for the strengthening of my psychic and ma- magical powers. And it was kind of eerily quiet in the house. And I turned on the television, and there was a news report on that was accompanied by a live shot of a plane crash site. And then, um,. <coughs> And then an image of Samantha Smith came on the screen. And the reporter said,
2: Last night, 13-year-old Samantha, America's youngest goodwill ambassador, was killed in a plane crash.
3: I wished her dead, and now she's gone. I wished her dead, and now she's gone. I knew I'd killed her. And the shame of that, or what I believed I had done to the world and to her mother Jane, was immense. For about three years after that, I attributed every moment of pain or trauma as all part of my punishment for what I had done. Everything told me that I would eventually suffer a painful death at a young age because I deserved it. And so I waited. The world didn't forget Samantha. Uh, The newly elected governor of Maine signed a bill proclaiming the first Monday in June, Samantha Smith Day. And the bronze statue of Samantha was unveiled in front of the Maine State Cultural Building. It was right before my birthday, so every year when my birthday came around, I was reminded that I was getting a year older and Samantha Smith was not. If I told my dad that I killed that girl, he would have believed it. I I have no doubt in my mind that he would have believed it. It probably would have amped up my training again, but it wasn't worth it for the shame that I felt in what I had done. I, I, I believed I killed this girl. And I was visiting my father in North Carolina. I was on the porch, and I saw cars with lights come up and the lights were flashing. Um, It was a dirt road, and they did a slow roll up to the house and parked right in front of the porch, and they got out. And I'm thinking, they're coming for me. Three deputies were there. One of them kind of looks down at the ground, kicks the dirt, spits a little. It turned out that um, they had come to prosecute him for unpaid child support and I listened to my father weave a very believable tale, a very believable and untrue tale that he had been paying child support all along. I knew it was untrue because I knew we were on welfare. I knew checks hadn't arrived. And he had expressed to me that his his support came in other ways. And one of those ways was my magical training. Soon after that, I came across some flyers for a class that he was teaching. I'm standing there looking at these flyers, and my dad, who's just lied about paying child support a few days before, is also calling himself God the All-Knowing Greatness. And I couldn't even look at him because I realized that my father was either very unwell or lying or a combination of both. It kind of planted a seed. It was a few years later, and I really went through a very confusing time of kind of letting go of my father's beliefs, but being incapable of letting go of my own belief that I had magical powers. I think, yes, I was definitely older than someone might expect before I realized the truth. Suddenly, I just stopped, and I started to cry, and I said aloud, I I don't want to live like this anymore. And in that moment, when I thought that, I knew the truth. I knew I had not killed Samantha Smith, and I knew I hadn't killed her because I had never had that much power. Knowing that I hadn't killed this child was an enormous relief for me but even after this experience, I would say probably for 30 years of my life, I've had to remember that I'm not magic. I just don't believe that I can levitate. Well, I'm not saying no, I I don't think I can. I'm pretty sure I can't. No, I can't. Jam it!
0: Be told, Kate, I practiced my magical powers this morning. Find out more about the magical, mysterious Katie Lippa on our website, snapjudgment.org. The piece was produced by Anna Sussman with original scoring by Leon Morimoto. It's about that time. Time you knew that you are indeed a godsend to us snappers. Because of that, we made you something special. A full on library of Snap episodes and podcast form waiting, waiting for you to subscribe. Free of charge to put some Snap in your pocket. But how do I do it? Glenn, how? Just go to snapjudgment.org. It's all there on iTunes, Stitcher, your local public radio station, wherever you get your Snap fix. Snap is produced by myself and a team that dropped from the clear blue sky. Beat the pots together for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat City miller can do. Can you? Anna, the angel sussman. The horned one, Julia DeWitt. Nancy, who must not be named Lopez. Davey, who must be named Kemp. Joe the Streets Have No Name Rosenberg Renzo Who Has No Game Gorio The Snap Celestial Choir Anna Adlerstein, Eliza Smith Leon Morimoto Matt Ducat Ducant and Jasmine Aguilera Keeps it real This episode is executive executive produced by Jason Songer Thanks a lot This is not the news. No way is this is the news. In fact, you could test the universe by walking in a thunderstorm with an antenna strapped to your forehead only to have the universe provide exactly what you deserve. And you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. <laughs>